Thank you, and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. We already heard uh, the scripture this morning. Luke chapter 4, we'll start in verse 14. After Jesus' baptism, after the temptation in the wilderness, and now he's launching his public ministry. And what an important text for us. Well, they're all important, right? But specifically important because living in a culturally Christian country, I just say that slowly, that's a lot of C's, culturally Christian country, the person of Jesus and his teachings can become so convoluted that everybody has their own Jesus and has decided for themselves what his ministry ought to be. And we have said many times from the pulpit now that part of the fallenness of man is the tendency to replace the truth of God with our own quote-unquote truth. To even read our Bibles and interpret it in such a way that it was never God's original intended meaning, but to replace it with our own convenient meaning. And so many people say they believe in Jesus or they follow Jesus. And after getting to know them a little longer, you start to wonder, who is this Jesus they're talking about? Because it's not the Jesus that we see in the Bible. So Jesus is launching his public ministry in his hometown. And what a great passage for us to really dig into what is the ministry of Jesus. If we're going to be disciples of Christ, we need to know who he is, what he's about, so that we can follow him, preach the same gospel he's preaching, and live the life that he has called us to live. Luke 4.14 reads, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Remember the Holy Spirit descended upon him at his baptism, guided him into the wilderness for his temptation. And remained upon him for the duration of his ministry. And so... News about him spread through all the surrounding districts. So Jesus has been ministering and preaching, and news is spreading about him. Word is getting out. No Facebook, no Instagram, no Fox News, no CNN, no whatever. Your choice of, of your news outlet. Word is spreading. And we understand, like when we play the game of telephone, that the farther the news spreads from the original source, the more convoluted and the foggier the message gets. So we can only wonder what kind of news had made its way to Nazareth, his hometown. It says, and he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. Now, you need to understand that a year has gone by since his temptation. And you wonder why Luke didn't include any of the background material of what happened during that year. In fact, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what, which we call the synoptic gospels, uh, don't include much material about what happened in this first year of his ministry. John, though, goes back and fills in the background for us, the Gospel of John. And the best I could say, uh, just my sanctified guess here, why would Matthew, Mark, and Luke omit this section of Jesus' ministry is the purpose of writing their Gospels was not to fill in every single possible detail about Jesus' ministry. In fact, John, what does he say at the end of his Gospel? If we recorded everything there was to say about Jesus, there wouldn't be enough books in the world, right? And consider this also, um, they had very limited 
space in which to write. They didn't have Bibles like this with ultra-thin pages and precise uh, typeset. It was handwritten on papyrus or vellum, which is a specially prepared animal skin. Um, in fact, space was at such a premium that in the Greek, they put no spaces between the words. You're like, well, how did they read it then? Go home and type out a paragraph and take all the spaces out and print it out and give it to someone to read, and they will read it just fine. It's amazing how God made our brains to adapt that way. So, so my guess is that not everything needs to be included because the purpose of writing the Gospels is to introduce us to Jesus as the Son of God and that He is Messiah and that He died for the sins of the world. And enough is included for us to see that He has demonstrated through His teaching through his miracles that he is who he says he is and he has authority to speak in the way that he spoke and that we can put our our trust and our faith in him but i did want to tell you what went on in this year between his temptation and speaking publicly at his home synagogue so we've got some bullet points here and i realize the font is a bit small you don't need to write this down. Actually, the slides get put up on the church website. So if you really want to see this information. After his temptation, Jesus returned to the Jordan River where John the Baptist was still baptizing. And that is where John declares him to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That happens after his baptism. While they're in the region of Bethsaida, Jesus calls Andrew, Philip, Simon, Peter, and Nathaniel, also called Bartholomew. So here's where he first meets four of the disciples. Then Jesus returns briefly to Galilee to go home for a wedding in Cana. Kind of remind me of like when you're in college and you have to run home for a wedding or something although it's probably a lot harder to run home without a car or mass transit. And weddings lasted for a long time back then. And that's where he performs his first miracle, turning water into wine, but he wants to keep the miracle private. He, he doesn't want word to spread yet about his messiahship. He then heads south, or down on the map, but as we've been saying, everything that goes towards the temple is up in Jewish understanding. So he went up to Jerusalem for the Passover, down on the map, up theologically, and probably geographically. And while he's celebrating the Passover, he cleanses the temple, and he does this twice in his ministry, one at the beginning a second time at the end of his ministry. It's, it's at this time that he meets Nicodemus and teaches about being born again. And then we get the great John 3.16 line. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. On the return trip, North, up on the map, down from the temple, he passes through Samaria, which, remember, many Jews would try to go around Samaria because they didn't want to be around the half-breed Samaritans, half-Jewish, half-Gentile. They were hated and disrespected and, and shunned. And he meets the woman at the well, who it's bad enough the Samaritans were shunned by the Jews, but this woman was shunned by her own people because of her adulterous lifestyle. And Jesus ministers to her and tells her about living water. And if she drinks of that water, she'll never thirst again. And 
she comes to understand that he's Messiah. And he tells her that a day is coming when it won't matter what mountain you worship on. That God will be looking for worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. And so I know you know a lot of these Bible stories and this is filling in the picture. Oh, okay, is that when that happened? Is that when that happened? And then he makes his way north and as he's passing through Capernaum, he's preaching in synagogues and the buzz is spreading about him. So by the time he gets back to Nazareth, this little, you know, obsolete, off-the-beaten-path fishing town Jesus, uh, really almost a nobody from nowhere by human perspective, by human estimation, a carpenter's son, returns to his home synagogue. And I was thinking of an analogy for service, and it would be uh, like Nathan growing up in church and leaving for college and coming back. And... uh, if we had heard he was really becoming quite a preacher out there. And he's back to his hometown, back in his home church. And the way the synagogues would work, though, back then, is there weren't senior pastors or senior rabbis. There was a synagogue leader, and you needed a minimum of ten men in order to have a synagogue. There was no one appointed teacher different men would teach. And if you had someone traveling from out of town who was a guest rabbi, that would be very exciting. Very exciting to have a guest rabbi. And so this is kind of one of those local boy makes good stories, right? Uh, oh, it's G- oh, Joseph's son. Oh, we hear he's, he's becoming quite the rabbi. Really, Joseph's son, quite the rabbi. Yeah, he's going he's to be at the synagogue, and he's, he's going to teach. And so there's a scene for you. Who knows what people are thinking, but remember the context is these are uh, already people who are not the most important people in Israel. So their own countrymen don't te- treat them with a lot of respect, and they're living under the subjugation of the Roman Empire. So they consider themselves the oppressed of the oppressed and the poor of the poor. In fact, when word got to one of the disciples back on the other slide there that they thought they had found the Messiah and he was from Nazareth, the, the question was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? Can, can anyone important come from Tehachapi? Really, out of all the places for Messiah to come from? Nazareth? And so, picking up the story in verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and was, as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and when it was time for the reading, he came up to the platform, asked for... It says the book of the prophet Isaiah, but don't, don't picture this. More like a scroll. And he would ask the attendant for the specific section because Isaiah is such a long book, right? It's 66 chapters. 66 chapters, just like there's 66 books of the Bible. 39 Old Testament, 27 New, and Isaiah is very much broken up that way as well. The first two-thirds of Isaiah, 39 chapters, and then the, the last third, 27 chapters. And so this is a section from Isaiah 61. From Isaiah 61. When you start getting to the part of Isaiah that talks about the restoration after the judgment. So instead of preaching judgment, he's preaching a section people would know for restoration. 
And these are downtrodden, downtrodden, oppressed people. And they want to hear this kind of news. This good news, this euangelion, the good news, the gospel. Good news to the poor. It's a poor fishing village. A recovery of sight to the blind. Blindness. So common in the ancient Near East. Let me ask this, and if, if you don't want to raise your hand, you don't have to. I don't want you to be embarrassed. But how many people without their corrective lenses would be more or less blind? There's a lot of hands up. My own daughter, who's 17. When, when we took her to get her glasses, it was like, trees have leaves? And praise God for the, the miracle of that technology. But can you imagine living in a time when a good portion of the culture was technically blind? And there was nothing they could do about it. Common eye infections that we go and take antibiotics would turn into horrible, damaging eye disease. The antibiotic ointment put on newborn baby's eyes because as they pass through the birth canal, they picked up, pick up bacteria. None of that. So blindness was a, a uh, was prolific in the ancient Near East. It was just a way of life. And if you were blind, that was it. You were no longer a... Um, you could no longer work. You were reduced to a life of begging... And charity. And worst of all, the theology back then was that either your parents had sinned or you had sinned. Remember in John chapter 9, the the disciples pass a, a boy born blind and they ask Jesus, who sinned? He or his parents. What a what a terrible way to live life. Well, either my parents did this to me or I did this to me. But if he was born blind before he even has a chance to sin, then certainly the parents get the blame for that one. And Jesus said, neither. Neither. It was so that God could be glorified in the situation. Yes, God ordains sickness, disease, and suffering for purpose. Isn't that good news? That our suffering and our disease and our sickness isn't just, well, yeah, lost the genetic lottery. You know, tough to be you. And some people want it to be that way because they want to let God off the hook because if a God was all-powerful and all-good, he certainly would do something about it. And so they would rather see God as uh, a either non-existent or a far-off deistic God who's not involved in our everyday affairs because they can't see for the life of them a purpose for suffering. And yet, God does amazing, glorious, wonderful things in and through suffering. And then certainly... Liberty to those who are oppressed. Who doesn't feel oppressed? Oh my goodness, this is America now. Everybody's oppressed. Have you noticed? And if we're not careful, you can easily convince yourself you're oppressed. If, if the election had turned out differently Tuesday, we'd all be complaining that we are oppressed. And so instead, the other half of the country is complaining that they're oppressed. If you're not oppressed, then you're a nobody in our country. I mean, everybody's got to be a victim of something. We're the most wonderful, prosperous, free country in the history of the world, and we'll find something to complain about. These folks had far more justification for considering themselves oppressed, downtrodden, poor, overtaxed, suffering. They needed good news. 
and local boy comes back and there's excitement and there's a buzz and what's he going to say? And he gets up and he reads what's got to be a very familiar text, very popular messianic text. Messiah is coming and he is going to reverse our fortunes. He is going to restore blessing back to Israel. He is going to defeat our geopolitical enemies. He is going to banish disease and sickness. He is going to redistribute wealth. We're all going to be rich and free, large and in charge. That'll preach. That'll draw a crowd. That'll fill the offering plates. That'll make friends. I have for you the text of Luke and the text of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Side by, well, not side by side, but they're together so you can see them. I know the the font is small, but you're going to notice right away that there's some pretty significant differences between the two texts. And I don't want you to panic. Jesus did not misquote Scripture by the way he is Scripture incarnate. When he speaks, Scripture pours forth. In fact, Jesus would teach in this way. He'd say, you have seen it written, but I say to you... I mean, Jesus can change the text. He has the authority to do so. Don't try this at home. But it was also common in his day, from best we can see from historical sources that when the rabbis came to preach in the synagogue, this was common practice because it's hard to flip through the scroll. So you might take a section from here and a section from here and a section from here and put it together to make your point. And because the aim was to teach, sometimes when there's an unclear line, you might add a phrase that kind of explains that line. And you've heard me do this. You've heard Pastor Andy do this. When we're in teaching mode, we might read through a scripture and elaborate on a line of scripture. And then you go, oh, oh, okay, is that what that means? It's a very effective way to read the scripture. It's not that we're adding to the scripture. We're elucidating or illuminating or, or um, I should use clearer language. My wife gets mad at me when I use vocabulary to explain things that nobody understands. Because uh, that defeats the purpose. Uh, yeah, you, you paraphrase. Is that, is that okay? You paraphrase a verse in such a way that we can all go, oh, oh, okay. I get that. And you have to be careful when you do that to Scripture. If you think you have the meaning and it's not really the meaning and you paraphrase, you've done great damage to the Scripture. So let me, let me explain some of the discrepancies here. First of all, Jesus most likely was reading from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Greek became the common language of the day because of the Roman Empire. They spoke Greek, not Latin. Many spoke Latin, but Greek became the uh, language of the day, a, a lingua franca, the common language. How kind of God to send Jesus into the world when there was a common language everybody could understand. How much more clear can God be that salvation is for the nations and that the Bible, New Testament, was written in Koine Greek, common Greek, not the Greek of the elites, but the common language that the regular folk spoke. And they realized that they needed Old Testament scripture written in Greek. Many weren't understanding Hebrew anymore. And so the myth goes that 70, which is where we get the term Septuagint, 70 rabbis went into separate 
chambers and began to translate the Hebrew into Greek, which is very difficult because they're two completely different languages. And in the Hebrew, the order of the words matters. And in the Greek, the order of the words doesn't matter. So how do you make sure you have a good translation? And the rumor or the myth was that the 70 rabbis came out of translating and all 70 of their translations were exactly the same word for word. Just a myth. We don't need that kind of supernatural mysticism to give us confidence that the Septuagint was a faithful rendering of the Old Testament. You don't need to know and believe that 70 English translators went into a room and came out and all 70 of them had the same English translation in order for you to trust your English translation if they did their homework and studied and got to the meaning of the original and found the best way in the English to translate that meaning, then we couldn't be confident in our English translation. And likewise, the Greek Septuagint. In fact, Jesus in the New Testament almost always quoted from the Septuagint. That might be shocking to you. Why didn't he... Why didn't he quote directly from the Hebrew? Didn't need to. My Greek professor in college used to jokingly say, why do you guys go and spend so much time studying Hebrew? You have the Septuagint. Um, And I was like, amen. I'll learn one extra language. Um, But boy, you miss out on a a lot if, if you don't spend some time learning the Hebrew. So I'm glad they put us through that too. By the way, don't ever get the impression from me that somehow I'm fluent in these languages. I am not. It takes a long time to, to translate like one verse for me. I've got dictionaries open and at the end of the day I just go to Logos or Bible Works and use my computer. But it is helpful. You do see things in the text that is hard to capture in the English. I know there are still a handful of Christians in our culture today who, in the same way that myth about the Septuagint was circulating, do the same thing with the King James Bible. That God supernaturally inspired that English translation and only that English translation. And there's, very, uh, there's fewer and fewer of those folks out there today. Most of them tend to be uh, in the South. Um, but you can trust your English translation. Be careful, though. It's a translation. And the farther you get away from a word-for-word translation, the more you run the risk of what you actually have in your hand is a commentary. So the Amplified Version, the Message Bible, these These might help you when you're a a new Christian because the Bible uses language and figures of speech that we're not familiar with. But be careful. What you're reading there is, is more of a commentary. They start injecting their own interpretation of the meaning of the Scripture into the translation. So... When I study the Bible, I like to read from the NASB, the ESV, the, I'll do the NIV, the, the, um, I like the NLT. I've, I have a computer program where you can pull up all of these translations. And where there's major differences in the translation, that's where I go, huh, I wonder why the translation team went with this in this translation versus this. And that helps me ask new questions and study deeper. You want to be careful that you don't hang an entire doctrine of the faith off of one particular translation. And you also need to be careful that you don't search around for the translation you like for that particular verse because that translation translates it in the way that I've already decided the verse should be read and and, uh, interpreted. We call that confirmation bias. I've always believed this about this verse. Ooh, I don't like the way the ESV... No, no, no. Oh, here's one that says it the way I like it. You don't want to do that. 
now you're injecting your own beliefs into the Bible. You're eisegeting instead of exegeting. You want to pull truth out, not inject your truth in. You'll notice that Jesus leaves out an entire line from the Septuagint, the part about binding the brokenhearted, which is a beautiful line and is completely true about God and completely true about Messiah, and certainly Jesus binds the brokenhearted. And for whatever reason, it's not included in Luke. And I don't know why, and I don't think it's necessary to speculate. He either left it out on purpose, or he had a version of the Septuagint that there was a scribal error, but I I find that one hard to believe because they were so careful about the way they copied the Scripture. It doesn't change the meaning of the passage at all. What's more interesting is this recovery of sight to the blind when Isaiah doesn't say anything about recovery of sight to the blind. So you're like, well, where did he get that from? It turns out that the Hebrew saying, proclaiming liberty to the captives, is a Hebrew colloquialism or figure of speech for healing blindness. The blind, the metaphor was that your sight was in prison. He said, well, well, I kind of get that. No, we don't get it at all because our prisons have gotten rather cushy. The prisons back then were a hole in the ground. A hole in the ground. Dark. Dank. No windows. No yard time. Trapped down in your own human waste and filth. Groping around in utter blindness and despair. What? Now that's a powerful image for blindness. Something you'd want to be set free from if you could. And so it appears that Jesus reads the Septuagint and then adds a line of commentary to say recovery of sight to the blind. The way you would do when you're teaching. Oh, I see. He's talking about figurative setting captives free. But because Jesus also is coming to set other kinds of captives free, not in the blind sense, he also quotes from Isaiah 58.6, which is the line that says, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And then to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you notice he stops reading Isaiah 61.2 before he gets to the day of vengeance of our God. At his first coming, Jesus is offering sight to the blind and freedom to the captives. And good news to the poor. At his second coming, it will be a time of judgment and vengeance. This is a reversal of fortune messianic text that Messiah will come and turn everything around, restore everything. And not only restore it back, but restore it to better than it was before. This is reversing the curse in the ultimate sense. Yet these promises are for Israel, but in the ultimate sense, all of creation will be restored. Notice this is the entire trinity at work here. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. 
So now we understand the scene. These people are excited. Their dreams are about to come true. They're going to be freed from their political oppression. They're, they're impoverished and they're tired of seeing the rich overtax them. I don't think at all were they picking up on the spiritual meaning of the text. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, because now's the part where the rabbi explains the text. And the way they would do this is they would say, you've heard rabbi so-and-so explain this text in this way. And he got his explanation from rabbi so-and-so and rabbi so-and-so all the way back to Moses if you were really good at playing the game. And the more names you could drop, the more authoritative you were as a rabbi. It also became a vehicle for you to come up with some pretty novel interpretations of a text, like the game of telephone. Tweak it a little, and then a little, and then a little, and a little more. And by the time you're teaching that day, you're making the text say something it was never intended to say, but you have your chain of proof. This week I heard it said from Tim Kaine, right, he he was the vice presidential nominee for the Democratic Party, that the parable of the day laborers where everyone got a denarius no matter how hard they work was Jesus teaching on redistribution of wealth and socialism. Okay. <laughs> That'll preach, right? If, if you want wealth redistributed, that's your passage. And we know it has nothing at all to do with that whatsoever. That whether you come to the Lord at the beginning of life or the end of your life, everybody gets heaven. And it's his heaven, and he gets to distribute the wages the way God sees fit. So they're waiting for Jesus to teach in that way, and he skips all the middlemen, and he just says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, imagine Nathan saying that to you guys. If you helped raise him and change his diapers and watch him grow up and be a punk kid and play basketball. And Jesus was never a punk kid. But to come and to read and then not only speak authoritatively, but bypass... Well, you've heard Pastor Andy say, and you've heard, just go straight to, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's, he's calling himself Messiah. He's the chosen one. He's the one. And because of the news that has been surrounding him of the things he's been accomplishing in Capernaum, they're like, maybe, maybe he is the one, but they're skeptical. And you're wondering, what did Jesus mean about these things are fulfilled in your hearing? And this is where all the shenanigans start to get played out in our culture. Everyone who claims the name of Jesus has a different way of interpreting this particular passage. So let me give you three, quickly, three false interpretations. And then we'll, we'll look at the true interpretation. Three false interpretations. False interpretation number one is the social gospel. The social gospel. Jesus came to redistribute the wealth and eradicate poverty. And if, if that's what he came to do, he's failed. But Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. And Jesus wants us to minister to the poor. And he ministered to the poor, but that's not all that he did. And so liberal theologians for years have eliminated all the truth about the virgin birth and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ 
and that you need to place your faith in Christ in order to have the gift of eternal life. And they've only focused on Jesus was all about telling people to feed the poor, help the poor, serve the poor. It's the social gospel. It removes the spiritual element and just focuses on earthly material needs. And certainly Jesus moved with compassion, met the physical needs of people. He fed the 5,000, which was really like 15,000 or more, 20,000, 5,000 men, and then their wives and all their children. Because he saw they were hungry and they didn't have time to get home uh, to dinner and there was no Trader Joe's, Costco, Winco, Albertson, Save Mart. And so he fed them, but then they came back the next day for their handout And he said, I have something better than bread today. I have the bread of life. And you'll never go hungry if you eat from the bread of life. And they were all disappointed. And they all left. And so we understand that we're not just to feed the poor literal bread. We're to give them the bread of life. So I love these shoe boxes. They meet the needs of the poor literally and with a view to these children's eternal destiny, their salvation. So I say to you, be generous, be moved with compassion, and be thankful that the Lord has blessed you abundantly and helped the poor. And partner with ministries like Samaritan's Purse, Compassion International, Children's Hunger Fund. These are ministries that not only feed the body, but they feed the soul. And then you have to be more discerning with other ministries. My family personally, and I'm not telling you what to do with your money, but we personally no longer support World Vision. We had our little adopted kids and their picture on the board, and then we found out that the the money just doesn't go to that kid. It goes to their whole village. And if there's somebody there to preach the gospel, then the gospel gets preached, but they don't want to interfere. And so... They may or may not preach the gospel. There has to be a local church there, and the local church, and they don't even know what kind of gospel is being preached. Could be a prosperity gospel, could be syncretism, it could be Christianity mixed with voodoo. They just say that's not our business. And I say it is your business if you're a Christian. It is your business to fulfill the Great Commission. It is your business to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and not under any other name. And so I want to partner with organizations that clearly have the gospel at the forefront of their ministry. So be generous, but do your homework. And help people personally, one-on-one, but make sure that you're sharing your motivation for helping. You know, you always have those difficult decisions. Is this person truly poor? Are they going to use the money for drugs? Are they lying to me? Are they taking advantage? Be be shrewd. I don't think God's ever going to judge you for being too compassionate and getting taken advantage of. You know, but if someone's out of gas at the gas station and they've got the sob story about we just rolled into town on fumes and instead of giving them cash, tell them to pull around and gas up their car and I hold the trigger down halfway so that it takes a long time to fill up so we can have a long conversation about Christ. I always ask, ask them, this happened a lot to me more when I would go down to, to Masters and work on my seminary down in the San Fernando Valley. It's like every other time I gassed up, somebody was going to ask. And so I'd ask them, now, why would a human being you've never met before be generous. I, I'm not doing this to make myself look big in your eyes, but what? Why would why would somebody be kind like this? I don't know. So, well, let me let me tell you where my kindness comes from, where my compassion comes from. I I had nothing spiritually, and God gave me everything in Christ. And what a great vehicle for the gospel. My tank was on empty, spiritually, and Jesus filled it to overflowing. So, be, be compassionate, but avoid the social gospel. Number two, the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel is 
Put your faith in Jesus and he will make you healthy and wealthy. The health and wealth gospel. If you have enough faith. So if you're not wealthy and you're not healthy, it's because of your lack of faith. And you can demonstrate your faith by giving to the prosperity preacher. And see how God has blessed him or her because he or she is fabulously wealthy. And look how beautiful and luxuriant and um, you know, how many facelifts can money buy. And this is sad because it's very akin to the kind of theology that was going around Israel at the time. God is happy with you if you're obedient to his word, which is true. And the proof that you are obedient to his word and God is pleased with you is that you're rich and you're healthy. So anyone who was impoverished, poor, destitute, diseased, disabled, that was a sure sign that God's hand of judgment was on your life. How sad to portray God in that light. And how much it would cultivate self-righteousness and pride. And the rich get richer and the poor get poor. And the only way the poor can get out of this position is by faith to give more to the rich. And then God will be happy with me. Sick, 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 twisted system. And Jesus came and... I mean, where do we see him the angriest? Knocking over the tables of the money changers. This is a house of prayer. My father's house is a house of prayer, and you've made it into a den of thieves. The final uh, false gospel I want to tell you about is, to me, the most disgusting of all of them, the liberation gospel. The liberation gospel. Whether you're, whatever your agenda is, feminist, LGBTQ, ABCDFG, whatever. Jesus came to set you free from the oppression of all the haters and the bigots and the narrow-minded. And like I said, all of us can fancy ourselves oppressed by somebody. I fancy myself getting to the place where I was feeling oppressed by all the people who said I was oppressing them. And I think that's a lot of what this election was about, was a good portion of the country said, I'm tired of being told that I'm the oppressor. I just want to work hard, earn a decent living, live a quiet life, leave a little something for my kids when I go. I don't want to be told all day long that I'm the problem. And so the liberals preach the liberation gospel. And what's so disgusting about this gospel is Jesus came ultimately to set us free from the bondage of sin and death. And they've replaced sin and death with anything that you just don't like. He came to tell us that we, our whole view of reality is wrong. And this group is saying Jesus came to tell you that your whole view of reality is the correct view. What could be more damning to give people the false notion that they are right about their estimation of the world and their lot in life and that Jesus will rubber stamp all of your ideas? Oh, you poor thing, you're so oppressed. And while people who aren't really oppressed are getting all the attention, our brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe are being persecuted, imprisoned, tortured, maimed, unspeakable things. And they're getting no help and they're getting no relief. Oh, but the poor kid in college who's got a full-ride scholarship, but his professor's teaching about uh, early colonial history. Oh, trigger warning. You've upset me now. You know, a bunch of colleges closed the college Wednesday and canceled tests because the poor college students were so upset. Because they're convinced that Donald Trump's a fascist Hitler. They don't even know who Hitler 
was. And if everybody's a Hitler, then now nobody's a Hitler. And then we're doomed to repeat history's mistakes. Here's a World War II vet right here. He knows how evil Hitler was. He knows what he was fighting against. And now we have all these perceived enemies. The real enemy is Satan. The real enemy is our fallen flesh. Anything that takes us away from the truth, anything that takes us away from repentance, anything that takes us away from acknowledging our need for a Savior is the true enemy. And so at first the people were excited about his words because they didn't understand he was talking about spiritual things and repentance. Yes, Jesus literally fulfilled some of these things while he was here in order to authenticate his ministry. Yes, he healed the blind. Yes, he preached good news to the poor and even in some places alleviated their, their, their um, poverty. But remember when when uh, Mary broke the alabaster jar of ointment on his head to worship him, and Judas said, oh, we could have used that money to help the poor, and he rebuked Judas. Hey, she's, she's worshiping me. Back off. But they're skeptical. They're skeptical. Really, is he the Messiah? Is he the one that's going to ultimately... Restore all of creation? They totally missed out on the third aspect of fulfillment, which is the spiritual fulfillment. They didn't see themselves as spiritually poor, bankrupt. They didn't see themselves as spiritually blind. How could they? They're spiritually blind. They didn't see themselves as in spiritual captivity. And so they were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Now, wait a minute. This can't, can't be the Messiah, can it? And Joseph's son? And you know the rumors about, about uh, his parents. How could this be a holy man? How can this be a prophet? Conceived out of wedlock. This, isn't this Joseph's son? And he said to them, because he knew their hearts, he's, he has the, in his divinity, omniscience. No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Do some miracles. Prove that what you're saying you have the power to do. Don't get our hopes up for nothing. And he says something really interesting. He said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Sidon. That's where Jezebel was from. The enemy Gentile territory. Elijah called for a drought to proclaim judgment on apostate, idolatrous Israel. You remember that through our tour through the Old Testament. And the drought was a, a literal judgment, but it was also, right, a picture of the spiritual drought the lack of faith, the lack of obedience in the land, and the, that the land cannot produce and yield fruit in that environment. And likewise, no good fruit is going to come from a people who's turned its back on God. That's what the drought was about. Maybe that's what our drought is about, California. While we're solving problems of plastic bags and you-know-what for you-know-what stars instead of the real problems that plague our land, sidetracked. Did you have trouble voting? I'm like, I can't believe I'm bubbling in this stuff. Oh, God, have mercy on 
our spiritually blind state. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, an enemy of Israel. In fact, in one of his raids into Israel, this slave girl taken from Israel is the one who tells him, Master, there is a prophet in Israel who has the power to heal your leprosy. And Naaman eventually humbled himself. And the widow, when... when Elijah performed the miracle of her jar not going empty and then eventually bringing her son back to life. She placed her faith in the true God of Israel. And so if God's own people aren't going to humble themselves and place their faith in God and be obedient to his word, then he will go outside of Israel. And Jesus will tell the parable about going out into the highways and byways and inviting others to the wedding feast of the Lamb. If God's people aren't excited about who God is and what He's done for us and humble ourselves before Him, then He will will go outside. And now they understood what He was talking about. And their mood was about to change. Remember, the kingdom of God is for the humble who admit their spiritual poverty, blindness, and captivity. So hard for us in prosperous America to consider ourselves spiritually impoverished and blind in captivity. Don't fall into the same trap as the Pharisees who thought that their wealth and health was evidence that God was pleased with them. In Christ, God is pleased with us because He's pleased with His Son. And in as much as we are humbly obedient to the scriptures, we can hear, well done, good and faithful servant each day. But God may bless you in ways that you never expected. Through suffering, which draws you closer to God. Through poverty, which draws you closer to God and makes you depend on God instead of your riches. Through disease, which draws you closer to God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart. You're only made pure in heart through faith in Christ, for they shall see God. Prideful, self-righteous, quote-unquote victims don't like being told to repent. The crowd that day didn't like to be told to repent. They got the message loud and clear. You're no different than your forefathers. You need to repent. They rejected the prophets of old, and you will reject the prophet today. And all the people were in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Thank you for not throwing Nathan off the, <laughs> onto 202. Thank you for receiving him as your pastor and seeing him as speaking on behalf of God. I'm an outsider, so I, you know, I went home once years ago and preached in my home pulpit. And Lutherans only preach for 12 minutes. And you know me. And I'm like, these people need to hear the whole counsel of God today. (laughs) And uh, I've not been invited back since. (laughs) And now I really am not going to be invited back. My theology doesn't line up. Jesus is offering spiritual riches to the poor in spirit, spiritualized to the spiritually blind, and spiritual freedom to spiritual captives. And who in here doesn't fit those categories. I hope 
and pray you see yourself in those categories because then and only then will you receive the good news of Jesus' ministry. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Amen and amen. We said last Sunday that no matter what happens Tuesday, nothing changes, and I stand by that. Nothing has changed. God is on the throne. The Great Commission is still the Great Commission. Maybe we'll avoid persecution for another few years. And if that's the case, then don't squander the opportunity to put up your feet and relax. Use that breathing room to redouble your efforts, to be intentional about living life, bringing the good news to the poor and blind and captive. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for setting us free in Christ. For in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. God bless you.